Well, teachers are crafting their lesson plans and students are stocking up on school supplies. Did summer go by so fast? This is a time of year that reminds us of the seasons of life. Sometimes these seasons are hard to distinguish from one another. When did your baby become a toddler? When exactly does a person move out of the young adult Sunday school class? Or when does somebody move into the Golden Age Harvester group? As a church, we don't know. But certain seasons are punctuated by moments and events. So ceremonies mark graduation from school. Weddings are that time when two individuals covenant together in marriage, transforming their responsibilities to one another and to society and before God. Perhaps if you've gone through a a significant transition, it was adorned by a weighty personal conversation. I still remember what my pastor said to me and my wife when I was ordained to the ministry, that going forward, my family would experience more intense spiritual warfare. That was especially sobering for me, and I think about that from time to time when times are hard. So, by the way, thank you for praying for your pastors, and also another good reason to come tonight to hear from God's word about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. I still remember what Emily's father told me when he walked her down the aisle and placed her hand in mine. I remember how he told me that I needed to listen well and give Emily time to express her thoughts and feelings to me. And I've tried to take that to heart, and I still remember his words to me in that moment. When John 16, Jesus is having one of these kind of significant conversations with his disciples, a momentous change, the likes of which these 12 men had never experienced, and the likes of which this world had not seen, was about to take place. And the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples not only helped them through that transition, but also still speaks to us today. So please take your copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 16. If you're using the Bible provided in the pew, it's on page 758. John 16. John 12 marks a turning point in Jesus' ministry. In John 12, in verse 23, Jesus said that his hour had finally come. He said there that now the ruler of this world, Satan, would be cast out. Now the world would be judged. And now Jesus would be glorified. And all of this was going to come not through military conquest, but through the sacrificial death of Jesus. And although Jesus, up until that point in John's gospel, had escaped the clutches of his enemies, and he kept his disciples safe, things were about to change. 
Jesus was going to be arrested. Jesus was going to depart from them, and his disciples would be exposed to new dangers. So, Jesus speaks to them at length to prepare them for that transition. And John records this talk in John 14 through 16. And today, we come to the last words that Jesus has for his disciples. So let's listen to these words together. Listen as I read John 16, and to capture the flow of thought, we're going to pick up reading in the middle of verse 4. John chapter 16, starting in the middle of verse 4. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when the Spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while and ye shall not see me? And again, a little while and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh 
from you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time is coming when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father, and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world, and go to the Father. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The main idea of this sermon is that Jesus' departure through the cross brings us many precious advantages. Jesus' departure through the cross brings us many precious advantages. This chapter describes those advantages that we have in this age. And at every point along the way, the door to those blessings is Jesus' departure. And to understand this rightly, we have to understand that when Jesus talks about leaving, when he talks about going away, that he has in mind his death, resurrection, and ascension. It's a package deal. He has all of that in mind when he speaks here. And he's, he's consistently connecting the manner of his departure with the blessings that we receive. So as we proceed through the text, we'll understand our advantages better as we connect them to Jesus' departure via the cross, resurrection, and ascension. Our first advantage is the coming of the Spirit. We see this in verses 4 through 15. Our first advantage is the coming of the Spirit. Jesus' departure by way of the cross brings the advantage of the Spirit. Now, the, dra the drama of this moment is palpable in verses 4 through 7. Jesus affirms again that he is leaving. And he tells them that in verse 6, that because he's leaving, sorrow has filled their hearts. 
But just as he's been doing for the last two chapters, Jesus brings them words of comfort and peace. And in fact, Jesus brings them almost unspeakably good news. Because he says there in verse 7, it is expedient for you that I go away. Now, for us today, that word expedient can sometimes have a, a negative association with us. So we might render this, it is for your good. It is best for you. Or it is to your advantage that I go away. The point is that Jesus' departure is actually incredibly beneficial for Jesus' followers. But wait a second. How could this be? How could this be? Stop and think about this for a second. If I were there, I think I might have been tempted to say, actually, Jesus, I can think of a whole lot of benefits of you staying here. In fact, I can think of a lot of good reasons why maybe you shouldn't go. It would be nice, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be nice if you could just go visit Jesus? If you were walking around this earth doing miracles and preaching? But that's not right. As counterintuitive as it sounds, Jesus shows us how his departure through the cross is actually best for us. And it's because his departure actually brings about new things that had never existed before in the history of God's people. Look at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 7. He says, For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now, the Comforter is none other than God the Holy Spirit. And it's not as if the world isn't big enough for the two of them. But rather, the Spirit would not be sent until Jesus accomplished his mission. Back in John 7, Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit. And John interjected a bit of commentary in verse 39, saying, The Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So up until this point in redemptive history, the Spirit had not been sent in some very important ways. The prophets of the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel, spoke about a time when God would send his Spirit in new and powerful ways. But when Jesus walked the earth, the Spirit had not yet come in those ways. But Jesus is saying that they now stand on the brink of the age of the Spirit's ministry. Now the Spirit would come because of what Jesus was about to do. Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension accomplished incredible benefits for God's people, so much so that it's best for us that Jesus depart in the way that he did. And the presence of the Spirit is one of those benefits. But Jesus goes on to specify what it is exactly that we benefit from the Spirit. So look at verses 8 through 11. Jesus says that when the Spirit comes, he would reprove or convict the world. The Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
the Spirit convicts people because they do not trust in Jesus, who is the only righteous one. And Jesus reveals for us here that, that unbelief is sin. Unbelief is the heart of sin, for which the world will be judged. And this conviction has come in a new and powerful way since the Spirit has come. Back in Acts chapter 2, if we would have continued to read, we would have seen at the conclusion of Peter's sermon in verse 37 that those who are listening, it says, when they heard this, they were pricked in the heart. They came under conviction of their sin and they said, what do we need to do to be saved? Have you ever come under that kind of conviction, friend? The Spirit does not bring someone to Christ without convicting them of their sins. And you will, in fact, never see your need from Christ if you don't know that you are a sinner, that you are unrighteous, that you deserve judgment. So, friend, if you've never felt the seriousness of your sin, acknowledge how far you have fallen short of God's righteous expectations and standards. We deserve only his just judgment. And if you sense that conviction of sin, don't ignore the Spirit. Don't suppress that. Don't resist him. Instead, see what is offered to you through Christ. His own righteousness. That is what is offered to you in the gospel. A trade. Your rags of sin for his righteous clothing. That can be yours if you turn to Christ and confess your sins and ask him to save you. All of his righteousness will be counted to you. You will be justified, the Bible says. You will have a right standing before God. If you feel that conviction, don't resist him. Turn to Christ. When the Spirit comes, he not only convicts the world of sin, but the Spirit guides God's people. We see this in verses 12 and 13. The Spirit guides the disciples into truth and is even called the Spirit of truth. Now, this isn't a reference to all truth in the world, right? This doesn't mean that the Spirit comes to make you super smart. Right? So Christians still misspell things and forget to carry the one. But the Spirit especially leads us into truth about Jesus. That is what Jesus is talking about here. So did you ever wonder, as you read through the Gospels, why the disciples are so confused about Jesus? They often misunderstand what he's doing and what he's saying. They're actually confused now in this chapter, and we'll consider their questions in just a moment. But it's not until after the resurrection and the Spirit's coming that they receive greater clarity. The Spirit led them into truth about Jesus. And for these disciples, this also meant a unique ministry of revelation, because they would go on to compose the New Testament under the Spirit's guidance and inspiration. 
And it's through that inspired word that the Spirit still guides us today. So for us, this means that the Spirit's guidance leads us into all truth about Jesus through his word. So again, to clarify, this passage doesn't mean that the Spirit's going to tell you which diet is best or what job you should take. I've heard of one guy telling his girlfriend that God told them that they should get married, and they didn't get married. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And so we should be cautious about claiming God's direction unattached from Jesus and from his word. This also means that we should be suspicious of claims to later revelation that aren't tied to Jesus. We see this especially in a religion like Mormonism that is younger than our country. J.I. Packer gives us good guidance when he writes, the true way to honor the Holy Spirit as our guide is to honor the Holy Scripture through which he guides us. The fundamental guidance which God gives to shape our lives is not a matter of inward promptings apart from the word, but of the pressure on our conscience of the portrayal of God's character and will in the word, which the Spirit enlightens us to understand and apply to ourselves. So do you want to experience the Spirit's guidance in your life? Then turn to the word. We must know the word and submit to the word. And that's why we give such attention to this book when we gather. It's why we open it up. It's why we read it. It's why we spend this time thinking about it together and hearing from God's word because this book is what guides us into all truth. We don't look to our experiences or our feelings or our intuition for guidance, but to God's word. The Spirit guides us into the truth about Jesus through his word. This becomes increasingly clear when we look at the next two verses, verses 14 and 15, where we see that the Spirit is about the work of glorifying Jesus. The Spirit brings conviction to the world, he guides God's people, and he glorifies Jesus. The Spirit doesn't draw attention to himself, but makes much about Jesus. Again, J.I. Packer has helpfully described the Spirit's ministry as a spotlight ministry. The Spirit shines a bright light on Jesus, showing his grandeur and glory. The Spirit unpacks the person and work of Christ, who he is and what he's done. So that's why verse 15 says, he will receive of mine and show it unto you. That's what the Spirit does. So if, if Jesus is the focus and the goal of the Spirit's ministry, then Jesus ought to be the focus and the goal of our ministry. Friends, I, I hope you know that life is not about you. The Spirit didn't come because you're a really big deal. He didn't come to make much of you, but to make much of Jesus. Garrett Kell is a pastor who's written a very helpful article that only makes sense to our modern ears by the title, the title of which is Stop Photobombing Jesus. You know what photobombing is, right? 
Photobombing is when someone's taking a picture and then you jump in at the last second so that people see you, so that you're in the frame because you want to be a part of that. Well, as a Christian speaker, Keller recounts how he became aware of his mixed motives in ministry. And he writes, I hoped that lost people would be saved, but I wanted to be the evangelist God used. I desired Christians to be encouraged, but I wanted to be the instrument. I wanted people to think God was awesome and that I was too. He calls this being a glory thief, stealing the glory that rightly belongs to Jesus. And in his article, which I recommend that you look up, or I'll send it to you if you ask me, he lists six confessions of a glory thief. He says, a glory thief needs to confess that I want to glorify Jesus, but I want glory too. Because I want affirmation, I hide my sins. Or I become bitter when God uses other people instead of me. I become more concerned about my public performance than my private devotion. I fear moral failure for the wrong reasons. And finally, when my desire to be something rivals my desire for Jesus to be everything. Friend, do any of those describe you? Then confess and receive forgiveness and give glory to God alone. The Spirit's diverse ministry is the first advantage that we gain from Jesus' departure. But there is more. Our second advantage is described in verses 16 through 28. And our second advantage is sorrow turned to joy. Sorrow turned to joy. Jesus' departure brings confusion and sorrow to his followers. We see this in verses 16 through 20. Jesus affirms again in verse 16 that he is leaving, and the disciples are more than a little confused. They question every part of what Jesus is saying. And along with these impenetrable questions, a cloud of sorrow hangs over this chapter, indeed over the last three chapters. Jesus says in chapter 16, in verse 6, that sorrow has filled their heart. And in verse 20, Jesus says that his death will make them weep and lament while the world rejoices at their expense. The Gospels recount how many grieved over Jesus weeping while he was on his way to the cross. And of course, we're familiar with how the, the women mourned for him at the tomb. Confusion and sorrow characterize this transition in the disciples' life. And, and confusion and sorrow are a bad cocktail. It's physically disturbing and mentally disruptive to have this kind of experience. But sorrow does not have the last word. Jesus does. Jesus' departure via the cross, resurrection, and ascension will bring joy, Jesus says in verses 20 through 22. 
Jesus says in the last part of verse 20, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. How could this be? What could penetrate this darkness? Resurrection and new life. Jesus here, he compares their sorrow turned to joy in that experience to a woman in labor. The labor is unbelievably agonizing. It's a 10 on the pain scale. But the joy when the baby is born is off the charts. The joy at the new life so far surpasses the pain that the sorrow is forgotten. The joy that conquers the disciples' sorrow is not the birth of a child, but the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus says in verse 22, Ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Beloved, this joy is still effective for us today. Jesus really is alive. And no one can take that joy from you. We will see his face in such a short time. Charles Spurgeon, the English preacher, put this so beautifully when he wrote, Looking into the future, the believer's enlightened eye can see death's river past, the gloomy stream forded, and the hills of light attained on which stands the celestial city. He sees himself enter within the pearly gates, hailed as more than conqueror, crowned by the hand of Christ, embraced in the arms of Jesus, glorified with him, and made to sit together with him on his throne, even as he has overcome and sat down with his father on his throne. The thought of the future may relieve the darkness of the past and the gloom of the present. The joys of heaven will surely compensate for the sorrows of earth. Hush, hush, my doubts. Death is but a narrow stream, and you shall soon have forded it. Time, how short. Eternity, how long. Death, how brief. Immortality, how endless. The road is so, so short. I shall soon be there. You shall soon be there. Brothers and sisters, encourage one another with these words. I visited Ray Acker yesterday, and I, I read this passage to him. And I told him that it would be such a short time until he would see Jesus' face. That is true for all of us. Jesus could return at any time, and our life is a vapor. It is so short. Whatever burdens you bear, whatever sorrows you experience, whatever sadness you feel now, you have only joy before you. 
you will see Christ's face. And that joy comes because we get Jesus. We get God himself. We also get the Father. Jesus' departure via the cross gives us direct access to the Father. Jesus says this in verses 23 through 28. Jesus addresses their preponderance of questions by inviting them to unfettered access to the Father. Jesus says in verses 23 and 26 that in that day, when Jesus is risen, we will have new access to the Father in Jesus' name. Jesus is careful to point out that we not only have a relationship with Jesus, but directly with the Father. He says in verse 23 that we won't ask Jesus, and he says in verse 26 that it's not merely that Jesus is going to be praying on our behalf, but that we ourselves can pray to the Father. Because through Jesus, we have direct access to the Father. And in verse 27, Jesus assures us that the Father himself loves you. This access in prayer is especially suited to assuage our confusion. The word ask or question riddles these verses. I don't know if you noticed that in verses 16 through 28. Everybody's asking questions. And Jesus knows the questions they have. And so his main direction for them is that they should ask the Father. He says in verse 24 that they should ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. So joy comes when we take our questions to the Father and experience his love as we receive from him. Do you have questions for God? Do you feel like the disciples that you need to keep those questions to yourself? That it might not be good manners if you take those questions to God? Friend, God is big enough to handle your questions. So take your questions to God in prayer. Talk to him about your doubts and your struggles. Don't bottle them up inside and let them fester and infect your soul. Jesus took his questions to the Father in the garden and when he hung on the tree. Paul, in the midst of his attempts to serve God, all the affliction that he experienced, he went to God and asked three times that the thorn in the flesh would be taken away from him. So take your questions to God. Ask him for help to understand and ask him for help to endure when you don't understand. And ask God that he would help you to be satisfied in him, in his presence, in your relationship with him while you wait and while you struggle. Jesus offers more help to his disciples. And another advantage in verses 29 through 33. Our third advantage is Jesus' victory. Is Jesus' victory. Jesus' departure by way of the cross brings real hardship. There is no doubt about it. 
we can see in verses 29 through 33 that following Jesus in this world is hard. In verse 29, the disciples lift their chin a bit and express faith, but Jesus warns them this won't last long. In a matter of hours, maybe minutes at this point, Jesus is going to be arrested and they all would flee and run away. Jesus warned them at the beginning of this chapter in verses 1 through 4 that soon people would think that killing Christians was going to be an act of worship to God. Jesus affirms for them then again here at the end of the chapter, in the world ye will have tribulation. As surely as the book of Acts recounts the Spirit's powerful ministry and, and people being converted, it also records the harsh persecution of Christians, some of whom were arrested and killed for Jesus' sake. Our brothers and sisters throughout history and across the globe today experience this kind of tribulation regularly. And in America, we live in a relative, sometimes numbing, ease. But that should not be our expectation and it will not always be so. America is not exempt from Psalm 2. America is one of the nations that rage against God and against his anointed. But far from being alarmist, Jesus gives us an incredible advantage. Jesus says that his departure by way of the cross brings victory at the very end of verse 33. Jesus concludes this message, chapters 14 through 16. He concludes this message to his disciples saying, Be of good cheer, or take heart, be encouraged. I have overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, here is a reason for courage. Jesus wins. And in the most important sense, he's already won. Did you notice Jesus doesn't say, take heart, I will overcome the world. He says, I have overcome the world. The certainty of victory is so solid, it's already settled. Friends, the game is in hand. And once again, our victory comes through Jesus' departure by the cross. Speaking about the cross, in John 12, 31, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And he says that that victory is won at the cross. The cross is how Satan was defeated. The cross was that decisive blow, the beginning of the end. And the future conquest that Jesus will bring is because of the victory on the cross. Jesus is worthy to take the scroll in Revelation and break the seals of history and judgment because he is the lamb who was slain. And his judgment is described in Revelation as the wrath of the lamb who was slain. So do you see that all of this comes through Jesus' departure? All of these blessings, all of this advantage. To say it another way, do you see that the advantages that Jesus brings come through his death, resurrection, and ascension? We receive the Spirit's help to convict, to guide, and to show us Jesus. Our sorrow is turned to joy. 
and we get direct access to the Father who loves us. And we participate in the victory that Jesus has won. And all of this is ours through Christ. And none of it comes without the cross. And all of it comes through the cross. Jesus brings us many precious advantages through his departure by the cross. The class of 2004 at Cher Homeschool Academy wasn't very large, so I graduated at the top of my class. <clears throat> so as I prepared my graduation speech, I, um, I remember having the strangest experience for me as a young teen. I remember writing at the computer and being overwhelmed with emotion and breaking down into tears. It was one of those, I'm not crying, you're crying moments. And as I sat there at the computer trying to collect myself and figure out what is going on, I realized that I had been, I had been writing the speech as if I were dying and giving my final farewell to family and friends. Eventually, I, I gained some perspective and dialed it back but transitions can feel like that sometimes. Transitions can be hard. Unlike me, Jesus really was about to die. And this really is his final message for his closest friends. And it's amazing that in this moment, while he's on the brink of suffering even suffering judgment for our sins, that he is so thoughtful and loving and kind that Jesus thinks of his disciples and prepares them for this transition by telling them all that he would bring to them, all that he would gain for them through his suffering. Friends, Jesus has gone to be with the Father. But he has not left us alone. And he has left us with many great advantages. He has overcome the world. He has spent, sent his spirit himself to help us and to guide us. And we can have joy that pierces our sorrow now, and one day all sorrow will disappear in the fullness of joy when we see his face. Oh friend, it is such a little while. Let's pray.